Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to Headspace, where we bring together three contributors from this month's edition of Prospect Magazine and ask them, what's the big idea? I'm Tom Clark, and as the November edition of Prospect flies off the presses, we're discussing the place of nationalism in Britain and in the Middle East, and also the importance of having a giggle at the expense of our island story. Our delusions of grandeur and the ancient language of empire clouding the judgement of Brexit Britain. We ask a Dutchman who's just run away from our shores after six years here who believes that Britain is a narcissist nation which needs time alone to sort itself out. We will also consider how you set about cultivating a national story in the extraordinarily difficult circumstances of occupation by visiting the Palestinian Museum. And, returning to Blighty, we'll thank the Lord for the one saving grace in our national character, the ability to laugh at ourselves. I just cannot think of another European country that could comment its own demise in such a beautifully uh, humorous way. We'll be talking about the satirist of Italian descent who now embodies the proud British tradition of sending up our politicians, Amando Iannucci. With me today, down the line from the Netherlands, is the writer Joris Leijendijk. And in the studio, we've got the managing editor at the Institute for War and Peace reporting, Daniela Pellad, as well as Prospect's own cultural guru, Samir Rahim. Welcome to you all. And Joris, let's start with your time in London. On arrival, you said you were just moving in with what you thought were close European cousins. A few years later, you were making fist pumps at the television as the Brexit vote came through. What on earth went on in between? I think what went on is is the discovery made by a lot of Europeans who get to know Britain through television, uh, through the BBC, through uh, cultural products, but basically the media, and who then go live in, in Britain or actually England and thinking they're moving in with family and they're being told, no, no, we're not family at all. Now, I would sometimes, initially, I would say, but we're neighbours, you know, there's this little North Sea between us. And I'd, I'd, I'd get these looks as if, I, as, as if I made an indecent proposal. And so over time, I began to realise that the, the English are really don't think of themselves as Europeans. And in, many of them seem to use Europe, a character of Europe, even to feel superior. You know, at least we're not Europe. And so by the end, I thought this, this country really needs, as you said, needs some time on its own to sort out what it is. There's this famous saying that there are two kinds of countries in Europe, small countries and small countries don't, who do not yet realize they're small countries. And I think England is in that latter category. And you 
drill into, I think, what you call our adversarial culture from Parliament to the school playground, but I think most especially maybe in the, in the newspapers. And I think it has to do something with a two-party system. And so by the end of any political process, you can declare a winner. Whereas in Northern Europe, we have, there are coalition systems. And so there's, there's, no, there's not the same incentive to declare a winner because you need to move on. And even if you vanquished, vanquished or, or won the debate, you'll have to move on. And maybe you need your opponent in the, as, a, as a coalition partner in the next debate. And so this is why our debates are so boring. Uh, and, and the Prime Minister's questions are fantastic. You, know, you cannot imagine Labour and Conservatives in one coalition. And so I think this creates this, together with the, the sport uh, culture, this, this sense that uh, politics is about winning. And uh, I think Northern Europe is more about politics as keeping the peace. And that makes for very different. You know, I, I, I moderate debates in Britain as well as in, in the Netherlands. And in the Netherlands, by the end of the debate, you go, well, sadly, we didn't, reach a, uh, we didn't reach a consensus, but at least we're still talking. Does this affect, I don't know, if you go to a party or a dinner or something, do people, like, engage in a less confrontational winner-takes-all sort of a way, would you say? Absolutely. And so if, if, if in the rare instance that a Dutch person achieves anything abroad, because we have such an egalitarian culture, it's all about mediocrity and consensus and harmony. So it's, to stand out is really very risky. So if you win a gold medal at the Olympics or something, the first thing you do is emphasize that you, you've, you've remained normal. That's really important to constantly emphasize that you're not walking beside your shoes. And I think this is one reason that there, there are four times more Brits than Dutch people but they're about 400 times more globally relevant Brits than Dutch people. And so the Dutch take very good care of the lower third. A lot of say, investment goes into making their lives better. It invests almost nothing in the top 10%. And so we don't have top universities, but we do, neither do we have the really crap universities that Britain has. Samir, does uh, reading yours turn you into a self-hating Brit? <laughs> well, uh, to paraphrase Woody Allen, I might be self-hating, but it's not because I'm British. <laughs> Yoris's piece, I enjoyed it. It's a great polemic. It will provoke a lot of debate and discussion. I think for me, the idea of Britain, I do have a sentimental attachment to because it is um, a more capacious idea than just, say, England. You know, it's Britain is a is an United Kingdom. It's a nation um, with four nations within it um, because of the imperial legacy. It's always had a sort of wider and a broader definition um, to me than um, perhaps is portrayed in Joris's piece and through Joris's experience. Um, I think that what I found interesting about the piece is that it seemed to um, reflect the kind of anxieties that we've all been feeling over the last two years, that we don't recognise the country that we're, we're actually in. But I think maybe the solution to that, um, for those of us who can't just go back to uh, where we came from, as it were, is to engage conversations with the people who did, for example, vote for Brexit or feel uncomfortable about immigration or feel that the uh, nation has changed its character and try and take them with us. Um, So in a way, I prefer perhaps a more consensual rather than confrontational. Is he sounding almost Dutch, Joris? Yeah, uh, I'm I'm wanting to flee. (laughs) I think one of the the key differences is that what what you just described uh, as British is what Europe is for me. So a more capacious uh, category to belong to. And so I think in that sense, the UK and Britain have simply outlived their purpose. And there is now an even more capacious uh, unit, which is the European Union. And so I think most Europeans who still believe in the EU would make the kind of argument you just made about Britain 
but then for the EU. And I think it will be difficult to, to juggle all these identities. So I think it's either leave the EU or unpack Britain, which I think uh, to me has, has outlived its use. But I did wonder um, about, for example, immigration, is that what happened with the EU is that uh, you, you suddenly had white immigration. And I was really interested when I moved to, to Britain to be put in this category, any other white. Now, the Dutch can be quite crude, but they would never create that category. And I was thinking, <laughs> were perhaps the English in favor of uh, immigration for so long until the EU happened? Because it was always brown immigration. So you never, as George uh, the Mikesh once said, you know, you may become British, you can never become English. And now suddenly there are these white people. So my white children would immediately be seen as English, whereas their classmates, Yasmina and Mohammed, who were born in England, who have passport carrying, they would at, ho at most be British. And so there, there's, there, there, I think there are some really sinister dynamics going on around race and immigration and English and British. And I, th I think the Brexit vote illustrates that, that these uh, contradictions have now reached a point where they have to be sorted out. Daniela, um, as you can hear, Eurus is a bit down on us. Um, and whereas many people say that British public's having a moment of madness with Brexit, you know, lots of very liberal people feel like that. Eurus believes it's a more permanent pathology. Uh, assuming you accept there's some sort of problem here, maybe, maybe you disagree completely, but what do you think it is? A, a, a brief passing thing or a, or a, a more permanent one? Well, I enjoyed the article very much indeed. I've disagreed with it vehemently as well, though. I don't believe that Britain now needs to sit on the naughty step and it will do us all some good to think about what we've done and the consequences. And I don't think that will make any difference if, uh, for our future relations with Europe and the European project. Uh, the, the article was written with a lot of compassion, but uh, as in the way of these things, it has slightly turned me into a raving nationalist. And now I can only <laughs> think of all the great things about Britain and all the ways in which, although we are an island nation, and that's very much reflected in our culture, in ways in which we are much better at some things than other European countries. So I suppose that's part of the, the combative character that, that you describe. But the important thing, I think, to remember amongst all this is we are evolving. A British character or the British identity is not a terribly static thing. It's quite hard to sum up. We're a country of immigration and migration. At the same time, we're quite xenophobic, but we're too polite to really do anything about it. Despite the uh, the Brexit vote, which I'm sure was fueled by concerns over immigration, we absolutely haven't seen the same kind of rise of the nationalistic far-right political movements that we've seen elsewhere in the continent. I mean, the worst we could do was UKIP, and even that wasn't majorly successful and has all but disintegrated. Yeah, that's a good point, isn't it, Joris? I mean, when it comes to the real hard right, like certainly France and probably the Netherlands as well, maybe got more of it than Britain? Or do you think actually that's just because we're blind to a lot of far-right stuff in our mainstream? Well, I, 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 I do take many of the points about Britain being a more capacious identity. And I think there, there is, Britain has a, a more relaxed approach to, to immigration. I think also because there's, there's less solidarity. And so, um, you know, when there's immigration to a welfare state like the Netherlands, People feel that immigrants will are entitled to so many benefits that it it, it jeopardizes their own benefits uh, to a larger extent than in Britain, where you just yeah you hardly get anything. So Britain, that that I think has a more American immigration system, um, and I think it has created a lot less resentment. On the other hand, 
I think if you would have a represent, representational system, I'd be very interested to see if you do not will not end up with a 25% uh, far-right political party. No, I, I absolutely disagree. I don't think we would. I think that we'll, we'll touch on this a bit later when we talk about British satire and comedy. We have too much of a sense of the absurd to ever tolerate people in brown shirts making silly hand gestures. I mean, we didn't in the 30s when it was very popular and we've resisted all attempts now. Yeah. And I, um, I genuinely, I think we are too, we're too aware of just kind of how ludicrous I think it's striking that um, Kazuya Ishiguro won the Nobel Prize for Literature yesterday and the last uh, four uh, British winners uh, over the last 16 years of the Nobel Prize for Literature, three of them were born outside Britain. Mm. Um, And for someone like Ishiguro, who's investigated English identity from the outside, as it were, he's now a British hero. Um, Yoris, I just... Want to have a final word? I don't know. Did you get a chance to read the article by Stuart Ward, which is also in the in 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 the, in the magazine that d- digs into a bit of the history of the the British pathology and links it back to empire? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I thought it was very interesting. Do you see that there's um, particular roots um, of uh, the problems you see in Britain are in the empire? And if that's the case, why is it that the Dutch, who also had a big empire right up into the forties, didn't they? Controlled. Indonesia managed to, to shrug that off when the British haven't? I think that the Dutch basically had their uh, Brexit moment in 1688 <laughs> when they were no longer a true world power. And so there was a growing realization over the centuries. Uh, and so the, the management of decline took a long time. And I think that the Dutch still think of themselves as, as larger and more important uh, that, than, than they are. Uh, I think with the, the major case for the European Union is we are all small countries, but if we pull part of our sovereignty, we, we still have a voice at the world table. Now, that argument immediately runs into tremendous difficulties in Britain, because it's, it's almost taboo to say that Britain is a country with less than 1% of world population, with an economy that may be 3% of world GDP, but it's mostly based on real estate speculation, debt fueled consumption. And that is just, you know, a tiny little place that can't even run its own nuclear weapon. That <laughs> Is, is, a, is, is such a taboo, whereas in the Netherlands, you know, the term un-Dutch is a compliment. <laughs> right. <laughs> Let's leave uh, Europe for a moment there and move from one nation's existential angst to another. Now, Daniela, you've been looking at a newish museum, which has finally got its first exhibition open in Palestine, which is dedicated to telling the story of one nation that isn't still a state. Now, I guess that when a people don't have their own land, the story they tell about themselves is even more important how does the museum seek to tell that story well it seeks to tell it in in numerous ways I mean the idea that the the museum campus itself in Birzeit near Ramallah in the West Bank is a hub uh, for actual exhibitions and activities and trying to draw interest from the the local area but also as more of a conceptual space as online and also traveling exhibitions and the first exhibition was Um, in Beirut it was a political examination of Palestinian embroidery now that had its launch last year and it's going to be coming back to the museum now because they have the audience is extremely diverse and extremely dispersed not only um, millions of Palestinians living in different circumstances around the world some in the West Bank some in Gaza some refugees descendants of refugees some who have never been to uh, any of the Palestinian-controlled territories. But then there's also Palestinian citizens of Israel. Yeah. And not just about exploring 
the Palestinian identity internally in terms of society, but also presenting something to the the outside world as well. I mean, as I as I write in my piece, I think the the most hurtful charge levelled against Palestinians is that there is no such thing as the Palestinian nation. There's no such thing as Palestinian culture. There's no such thing as Palestinian identity. I mean, the same charge is is levelled against the Israelis too. I think it's one of the most wounding things you can do in a battle of ideas to say, well, you simply don't exist. So does the Palestinian story, I mean, when we think of it um, as Westerners living over here, we probably think of it as a story of resistance and struggle, to some extent a story that's grown up out of opposition to the other story that's been invented, the, the Zionist story that started in some sense with the, with the Belfast Declaration 100 years ago. Does the museum, as far as you're concerned, succeed in turning it into a more positive tale rather than just a story of resistance? Well, it's very, very early days. I think the fact of the the establishment of the museum is a is a real plus in terms of exploring these kind of cultural issues. But I think all cultures and nation states they are founded on some extent to opposition we were just talking about britain being an being an island nation it's all about repelling invaders and fighting the other uh, in israel the identity is also very much focused a very large element of it is as well as anti-semitism over the millennia it's also a small country being a threat from its neighbors so I think that's part of everybody's identity with Israel and the Palestinians as well. I think sometimes there's a danger on both sides that you define your your identity by fear or by absence or by oppression. But there's political history and there's also cultural history. I mean, the Palestinian presence in, in, in the area of uh, the territory of Palestine is extremely old. It goes back millennia. There's, there's other issues to explore there's food there's art there's the the countryside Mm. there's ethnography so i think the museum gives a space and an opportunity to explore all of those things uh now yoris you've spent a fair bit of time in the middle east i think haven't you um do you think that the the palestinian story and the israeli story can ever be reconciled i think that would be very very difficult and but it's striking how both of them indeed almost were, were shaped by outsiders deciding that um, the disc- by the, uh, outside discrimination. Uh, so indeed, the Palestinians were made by Zionism, and Zionism was made by anti-Semitism. So uh, in that, that sense, they, they, they share a traumatic experience, but that trauma itself, I think, will prevent them from seeing that actually they, they were both victims of essentially European projects. When, when I was living there in 2002, if you had said that the Kurds were close to an independent state and the Palestinians had given up on one, I would not have believed you. This is one of those dossiers where you just cannot believe how things have, hap- have moved and changed in a, in a relatively very short period of time. Samir, in a world where you've got, you know, uh, the Internet everywhere and we all carry it around in our, our pocket on our phones, um, do you think we still need institutions made of bricks and mortar to put a a story together like this in the way that the Palestinian Museum is? Museums can be an absolutely fascinating and interesting way of creating a story, a narrative about um, the people you are and the people who you wish to become. And that's what I found so fascinating about this Palestinian Museum. I'm actually going to be in the area there in December. I'm hoping to go and visit it myself. Mm. Um, It seems a more creative way of approaching issues to do with national identity. Um, I do find it slightly um, concerning, though, that um, 
nationalism can be a positive force for unifying people against a sort of um, a, an oppressive state, um, but it can also have its own issues and its own problems. And I wonder whether the the mirroring of Zionism and Palestinian nationalism that I saw in this um, in the piece that you you wrote, Daniela. Um, was worrisome in some ways. And for example, when I went to Israel recently, I, I went to Yad Vashem, which is bo- both an extremely moving um, museum, which um, accounts for um, the Holocaust. Um, but it's also, um, I saw soldiers coming in and out there as well, on tours, being told a story about the country and the people's uh, progression, the end point of which is, now you have to defend your, your nation. It was both uh, a piece of propaganda and a and a and, an, and, a, and a, a sort of um, a memorial to the to the millions who died as well. And so I worry, is something similar perhaps might happen with the, with the Palestinian Museum? Well, Yad Vashem is an amazing museum, but it is also highly ideological. You're funneled through an exhibition of, of awful horrors, and then you come out and you see a view of the Jerusalem hillsides and the message of redemption. Uh, is very clear. But interestingly enough, I'm um, talking to Omar Al-Khattan, who describes himself as the ambassador at large of the museum. He said even 20 years ago when they were discussing founding the museum, they were emphatic they didn't want it to be the Palestinian answer to Yad Vashem. There was definitely this idea that we don't want to compare the, the tragedy of the Jews and the Holocaust and um, the, the founding of the, of the, Palestinian, uh, the Palestinian people. Well, I think his view is an extremely uh, intelligent one because he's talking about speaking to different audiences and exploring different ideas rather than telling a straightforward narrative. This is what happened. We were dispossessed. We've been oppressed. The occupation goes on. It's actually looking at experiences of Palestinians where they are, wherever they are in the world, in the diaspora, uh, within Israel, and the idea that this is not actually a national museum, it's not in charge of the national patrimony, I think actually it liberates it from having to tell a very, very defined and quite constrictive story. OK, um, Joris, um, there are countries, um, I'm thinking particularly of Germany, fabulous museum of the, of the German story in Berlin, you know, for, for good and ill, uh, it's all there and it takes day or two to go through it now we've got the british museum which is really a sort of trove full of plunder from around the world rather than a a telling of the national story in the same way do you think an institution of british history a museum of british history could help straighten us out i would be interested whether it should be in english or british because i keep thinking that so much of the issues clouding uh, and, and and circling around brexit have to do with its english nationalism and so how would that English story sound like? Because I feel that the British, British is used, you know, you, you get some of the glow of the empire, but once we start talking about the ugly side of the empire, then it's British and I'm English. How would that look? Well, with the nationalist turn that politics has taken if late in many parts of the world, some of us have concluded that if you didn't laugh, you'd cry. Samir, you've been looking at the identity of Britain's greatest living satirist uh, in a long profile of Armando Iannucci, whose celebrated creations include Alan Partridge and, and The Day Today, among many others. Um, it's got decades of work behind him now. How would you kind of characterise it? What's the thread? Well... Armando Nucci is, is a very strange figure because he's both um, extremely establishment. He's no private school, Oxbridge, OBE, but he's also a satirist who pokes merciless fun at the political establishment and also at this social idea of Englishness as well. So one of his earliest uh, programmes was um, The Day Today, 
um, which is a parody of news programs, which he did with uh, Chris Morris and various other collaborators, which even now people share those clips on Twitter when uh, a journalist is going over the top about something or a faux pas has been committed by a presenter. Um, so he was, he was always focused on the media and the way the media presents itself. At the same time, the character that developed out of that show was Alan Partridge, <laughs> which going to Yoris's point is he's sort of Partridge is the embodiment of a certain kind of uh, small-minded, very particular Englishness. You know, he's from Norwich. You know, he's regional. He's not from London. He almost certainly would have voted Brexit. And so he's treated Partridge over the years as a character who still is uh, uh, still alive, still still in the fictional universe, a bit like a Richard Linklater film, uh, he told me. Um, he's followed the progress of Englishness over the last 25 or 30 years. So Partridge has become a bit more socially liberal. Um, he knows the things that he should say, um, but at the same time, He's still, still the same small-minded Englishman that he always was. <laughs> um, and just him as a as a person, I mean, he's obviously, um, as you say, kind of well-connected, sociable, um, can move in or out of the establishment at will, bit of a bit of a schmoozer. But the people who work with him, you say, describe him as some sort of an iron fist. Yes, I mean, this is the thing. He's uh, the iron fist in a whimsical glove is one of his... Uh, contributors has uh, described to him he's got this very serious side so he's a big fan of classical music which he's just written a book about um he wrote a phd on milton which eventually he abandoned when he realized that um the opening lines of paradise lost could be sung to the tune of the flintstones um <laughs> of man's first disobedience <laughs> and the fruit of that forbidden tree so he's got that whimsical uh, sense as well but it's always grounded in, in in reality i think you could perhaps trace it to his own background um so his father uh was uh, italian uh wrote anti-mussolini articles in the 1930s he moved to britain and among and married um he's called armando as well and he married a a, a, a scottish woman of italian descent so um, as Armando told me, you know, he was always felt um, uh, very Scottish when he was at an Italian wedding and very Italian when he was at a sort of Scottish Cayley. Then, of course, he moved to England and he was the Scot Scotland at Oxford, an outsider there. And then he went to move and work in America on films like In the Loop and Veep, <laughs> which made him feel a Brit abroad. Yoris, are you familiar with his work? I mean, have you, yes. Am I being unduly patriotic in claiming him as a, as, as a very British genius? <laughs> yes, and I think I, I was I was, just think, I was just thinking that if we were going to have to have this exit Armageddon terrible uh, cluster F, then it's fantastic that it happened to the British because we get this running commentary that is just so funny. I just cannot think of another European country that could comment its own demise in such a beautifully uh, humorous way and, and so yeah very grateful Daniela given the many grisly realities in the, in, in the Middle East is satire ever a kind of salvation um, oh absolutely absolutely lots of jokes being made about Islamic State and about the wars in uh, wherever you go the Palestinians particularly Palestinians and Jewish Israelis also have got quite good at telling rather off-colour jokes about their own situation. But funnily enough, um, I talked to Armando about how do you do satire now when reality seems to be outstripping uh, in its absurdity. And I think that he created in, in his uh, programmes and films. And what were you, think, were you thinking of Trump or were you thinking of, I don't know, Boris Johnson? I, was th I was thinking of both, you mm. know, Boris and... And Brexit, and but also Trump as well. 
when they did the programs in the 90s, they had sort of figures like John Major and Tony Blair, who there was an implied sense of normality about them, which the satirists could go in and mess around with and put funny noises over what they were saying and all the rest of it. But now you have a figure like Trump who's so weird that you can't make him any weirder. And what was interesting is that uh, Amanda was saying that the best satirists now in America are people like John Oliver and Samantha Bee, who are being journalists. They are holding him to account in a serious way. They are sort of putting his absurdities next to each other and also then saying, well, this actually um, doesn't make any sense. The humour comes out of a sort of... The, 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 the comedians have to get serious to deal with the clowns in office. It's striking how, if you watch the thick of it, the, the underlying premise is all politics is ridiculous. And this is also exactly what populists are saying. And so... I'd, it yes, is, Beppe Grillo, of course, is a, um, yeah. in, in Italy, is a, is a comedian, isn't he? So the, 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 more, the more satirical the population, I think the more receptive they will be to a Boris Johnson. And so I, I sense something in the article, a kind of discomfort on the part of Iannucci, whether he isn't in some way clearing the path for these clowns, because he's been portraying politics as essentially clownesque. It's a quite a point, Samir, isn't it? And there's a thing, a trope of the Sun editorials is always to describe politics as a circus, has been for years, and it has fed the anti-politics mood. I think Armando is quite aware of that, and he's also quite nervous about what you've just described, Joris. I think what he would say is that he's often slightly disappointed that people take, for example, a character like Malcolm Tucker as being some kind of hero. He's the sort of spin doctor in the thick of it, whilst... He says, if you watch the programme, not only is he a terrible person, he's also terrible at his job. I think he Mm. thinks of his satire is definitely coming from, as it were, a moral position. In fact, Rebecca Front, one of the actresses in the the thick of it, describes him as a very moral writer. And I think Yunichi doesn't like to think that everything is ridiculous. And I think that's why he would like us to look at these characters, laugh at them, and then move on and try and try and do better, try and correct things. So, for example, earlier this year, he was uh, campaigning for um, quite seriously for uh, young people to sign up for the general election. And he has very serious ideas about how Brexit should be taken over by an all-parliamentary committee. Yes, but there is that there is that tension in his work. Yes, um, there's a, a serious point I can remember from the day to day, Daniela, about the feedback loop you have between um, the media and reality. There's a kind of Jeremy Paxman type figure setting up this very adversarial interview between people from two different countries and then engineering it into a real war. It, it does make you think, doesn't it? Um, I, that there is a serious point here that, like, you know, if, if we use the language of war all the time, um, you can end up with war. Does the media fuel conflict? I don't know. Whose side are you on? <laughs> <laughs> well, with that pointed question, I think we'd better leave things there. Huge thanks to Yoris, to Samir and to Daniela for joining me. The November edition of Prospect magazine is on the shelves from October the 12th. It features all three of these essays we've been discussing, plus much more besides, including Geoffrey Lewis on North Korea, Joseph Stiglitz on the economic argument in Britain, and we expose newsreader Hugh Edwards as Renaissance Man. You can pick it up in the shops, but even better, if you've enjoyed the discussion, visit prospectmagazine.co.uk and hit subscribe. 
you know you want to. And don't forget also to try our new weekly podcast series, How to Fix. That's with Steve Bloomfield and it's available at prospectmagazine.co.uk slash howtofix. I'm Tom Clark. The producer was Matt Hill at Rethink Audio and we'll see you again next time. Goodbye and thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.